I came here to specifically for the lava lamp, but I'm really disappointed now. <laughs> I feel like I feel like no effort has been made for me whatsoever. <laughs> I bet Marina Perkis had a lava lamp. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I wonder why that was. I'm still listening. I'm just saving you from me uh, changing. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful Sunday roast. We have two wonderful guests with us once again. Uh, let's start with James. James, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for anyone who's unfamiliar with you? Hey, guys. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, my name is James Kennedy. I'm a musician, an author, and a podcaster from sunny South Wales. I host a show called the uh, James Kennedy Podcast. I've had some of your previous guests on as well, such as the awesome Marina Perkis and many others. Um, yeah, and a little bit tired and groggy this morning because I was playing a rock gig last night, so I'm hitting the caffeine hard and looking forward to uh, getting fired up talking about the Tories or whatever you guys get up to on the show. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Great to have you here. Uh, Josh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, yeah, I'll be talking about the Tories quite a lot as well. Um, so my name is Josh Russell, uh, Josh Forward on Twitter, uh, FWD. Uh, I run a campaign called The Movement Forward, uh, and uh, we are essentially a tactical voting campaign but using tactical voting, kind of, uh, you know, people's anger to get the Tories out uh, as a platform for electoral reform, for proportional representation. Um, so we can talk a lot more about that. Um, but yeah, movement forward. Carol Vorderman was plugging you on LBC. Yeah, so uh, one of our big platforms is stopthetories.vote. And um, <laughs> yeah, there's, we've got lots of high profile fans of that. It does exactly what it says on the tin, you know. Yes. Um, so yeah, we, we hope that's basically what I, what I think of as going to be the third largest campaign of the general election next to the Conservatives and the Labour Party. Wonderful. Great to have you, both of you here. Alex, can you tell us a bit about yourself for anyone who's new to the show? Um, I'm going to just say you'll have your links in the description for people to go and look up either podcasts or sites or anything else. Hi, I'm Alex, also known as Political X. I run a YouTube channel. I'm a historian and a journalist. And my wonderful, sensational co-host, Max. My name is Max. I run the Robespierre <laughs> channel where I talk about British politics and Brexit in particular. Um, Alex, what's our first topic for, for this week? Is it okay for me to be drinking Starbucks? That's the topic. <laughs> should, <laughs> should we ban Starbucks? <laughs> I mean, you know. We're not all lucky enough to have a good local you know, independent, I suppose. <laughs> Is it better if I like switch it to a mug like this and then it's hidden? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have you not got Sunday roast mugs? Oh, we do! Our shop is open. Oh, great plug, Josh. I'm <laughs> <laughs> be going in that direction. <laughs> Three minutes in. There we go. Three minutes in. <laughs> we do. We have a shop. It's a hidden link on the on the YouTube channel. People have to go and try and discover it, but it is there. Let's go for Brexit. Let's go for the music industry. Because we saw um, one and I'm going to be careful. Liam Gallagher. Ooh. I think it was Liam. Was it Liam? That it absolutely ripped into Brexit Britain. And right. how it just ruined everything. Nothing works in this country anymore. Politics don't work. Social services doesn't work. People are on strike. There's no f eggs in the supermarket. It's shit. Brexit has been a fucking disaster. An absolute unmitigated fucking disaster. Nothing but nothing but nothing good has come of that. It's mm -hmm. been a fucking nightmare. And it will be a living nightmare until some politician has the balls to fucking put it in a manifesto and run on it. Brexit's been a disaster for young, younger yeah. musicians because, yeah. I mean, in the old days, uh, and when I mean the old days, I mean pre-Brexit, pre <laughs> um, 
you could be a young band and you could kind of go over to Europe and play bottom of the bill in festivals and sort of camp and you know, you wouldn't be paid hardly anything, but your experience would be life-changing. Whether you went on in the future to, to do bigger and better things, it doesn't matter. You, that, that, that's kind of sort of like a solid foundation for the rest of your life. Um, and that kind of creativity has been very much curtailed for people on this island because it's expensive now to go over there. It's not straightforward. You have to pay you know, for visas and all that stuff that weren't necessary. So it's a terrible, it's a travesty. Brit, you know, Brexit was a travesty and people are waking up to that now, thank goodness, but it was a disaster. Spiritual, spiritually, economically, just rubbish. So it was like Probably, blur and it sounds like no combined. Yeah, 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 yeah. United over, over the hatred of Brexit, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that sounds that sounds like something Noel would say because he, he tends to riff about a lot of things. Don't he? <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's not been great, man, to be honest. I mean, coming straight out the tail end of the lockdown as well. Obviously, the lockdown trashed, you know, most industries. But I mean, you know, like artists like myself, you know, we literally couldn't work and stuff. You know, like I've got a lot of friends who, who are like chart topping artists who are thinking about getting day jobs and stuff like that, you know, because, you know, labels make all the money from the you know the sales and stuff and the streaming if there is any artists get paid when they're on stage doing their thing so a lot of guys were coming out of the lockdown and you know hungry to tour as much as they could and a lot of, a lot of bands were also having to honor tours that were canceled during the lockdown so there was this kind of surge of touring activity and then we got slapped with the realities of of you know touring in brexit you know and um yeah, it's just difficult, man. In many ways, we're still feeling the ripples of it now. Like I said, because there was that glut of touring. It affected weird things like the fact that you couldn't get a tour bus anymore because now you have to get one from Britain. <laughs> and there's only like two companies or something that provide everybody with a bus. So the price went up to like three times for simple stuff like a tour bus or a driver or something like that, you know, which meant that uh, most bands just couldn't afford to do it. So they canceled their tours, which meant they were still not working. But in terms of like getting, you know, in terms of the mechanics of Brexit itself, you know, there's stupid things like the 90 and 180 rule, you know, where you can't be on the mainland for more than 90 days in 180 days, um, which for a band is not the end of the world because you, you don't tend to be in in one territory for that long anyway. You know, you'll do a, you know you'll do a few weeks in Europe and then you'll move on elsewhere. But for crew members, you know, whose full time job it is to bounce from one tour to the next, it's terminated many people's livelihoods you know they've had to get jobs i know many of these people you know um stupid things like the carne now you have to buy this thing called, i don't know if you guys know but the carne you have to buy a carne it's this massive document where you list every single item of equipment that you're taking over with you um onto the mainland including things like drumsticks and stupid shit everything um and then i think it's to stop people from like selling stuff because you'd need you need certain bureaucracy, you need certain is. paperwork to, to actually sell stuff. So yeah, I've heard about That's the same is. problem for, for people yeah. who want to do um, uh, shows like trade fairs. Yep. They actually have to have all this documentation because they have to prove that I'm not actually yep. taking this stuff to the, to the European Union to sell it. Yeah, sorry, yep. James, go ahead. That's exactly what it is, yeah. But you have to itemize everything. And um, and these counties cost hundreds of bucks as well. So on top of everything else, all of the other you know, headache of touring now, you know, you've got the, the hundreds of pounds worth of carnies that you have to have every single time you cross a border. Um, 
and this just this takes time you know you you you're you're on stage in germany in three hours and you're still stuck at the airport trying to find the customs guy who, who needs to now check all of your stuff to make sure you're not selling drumsticks on the way there you know it's uh it, it's stupid man um it's just yeah it's 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 made it difficult for bands at every level you know i mean um we actually did a talk on this in the house of lords last september with an amazing group of people called um carry on touring the carry on touring campaign uh, they put this so the whole whole um campaign together to campaign against this and they actually got a hearing in the house of lords and i was invited to speak there along with um, a lot of other musicians and nme magazine were there and everything documenting the whole thing and what became apparent in that is that this affects everybody like i'm good friends with the guitar tech for iron maiden you know they're quite big you know what i mean they're like one of the biggest bands on the planet and they've been hurt by this, you know, it's like it's, it affects everybody from the large to the small. And it's just it's just so unnecessary. It's so stupid. And music is is, is is one of the few things that we do really well in this country. You know what I mean? We we fail at so much like, you know, food and, you know, weather and voting. To... <laughs> yeah, voting. <laughs> things, no, but I mean, like music is one thing we've always been a world leader at. And to think that now that like, you know, we've just been, you know, cordoned off like this it's just i, I, I just don't get it it's I, I, just needlessly I, pointless i don't know if you saw the clip with the uh, the culture secretary um lucy fraser who was saying during the transition period as part of the tca but that brussels had actually something on the table which was rejected by brexiteers why well it sounded too much like freedom of movement so it had to go but lucy wants to blame the eu over this have a listen I think it is really important that we get touring musicians able to continue to tour uh, without red tape in the EU. Uh, we have got an agreement where you can go uh, to uh, EU countries, uh, tour for 90 days. We've done uh, bilateral agreements with most of those countries uh, where musicians want to tour. I think there are only three or four in the EU where we don't have a bilateral agreement. Uh, but this is absolutely, Richard, on my radar. Um, and I'm working with the Foreign Secretary to see if this is one of the things that we can continue to negotiate with the when EU. When can you possibly tell Richard he might hear more? He's, uh, well, he's, he's toiling with this on a weekly basis I imagine when there might be some progress for him he is well look we want to do this but it's a question for the EU so I can't give a commitment on timing because I'm not in control of that but I would like to take issue with Richard's point that we haven't done anything because in oh. June I announced a, a culture sector vision uh, a creative industry sector vision you know well, support for the industry and within that was five million pounds for grassroots music venues because we do recognize the importance of the pipeline of talent uh, and musicians you know getting that support that they need right. she, she was challenged on this she was challenged on brexit and she said well the, you know we're, we're working through these problems and she was asked about what sort of support she's providing to the industry. And she said, well, we have um, three, what was it, five million pounds set aside for some new scheme. Like, and I was thinking five million pounds. You're talking about a billion pound industry that's been hit yep. by Brexit. And you're talking about, you know, you know change. We're talking about not, you know, chump change, not actual real money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's insane, man. I mean, I, I feel like the solution could probably be quite a simple one. You know, there could be like some kind of um, waiver for people that are working on the mainland or something like that. Some kind of, you know, Schengen area wide waiver for, for people in my industry and, and many others. But um, hey, you know, that, we're talking about politicians now that could take decades. You know what I mean? <laughs> ahead, Reducing Josh. bureaucracy, wasn't it? You know, I mean, 
you know, and of course, all they've done is increase bureaucracy. And you kind of imagine that the reduction of bureaucracy they were really talking about was for them, right? Because what they actually want to do is create laws without the EU kind of over overwatching. Um, so that's what they were really talking about and not the bureaucracy that we have to deal with every day, you know, just engaging with Europe. 100%. Yep. It was a mad thing. It was a mad thing. The, the whole Brexit thing. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm sure we all agree that it was a it was a mental thing anyway. Um, but, I mean, you know, for me, that just leads into a whole area of like, can we be trusted anymore? I mean, should we have been given a referendum on something like that? Can we be trusted? <laughs> we're, we're too easily swayable, man. I mean, like, you know, you, you could convince us to vote yes or no for anything, depending on the headline. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'd be, I, I'm starting to think we need a benevolent dictatorship. I don't think we, should, we could be trusted anymore. <laughs> I think Stephen thing. Fry should be our dictator. <laughs> Instead of the I Stephen King-esque characters that we have now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to ask, have prices gone up in musical equipment as well? Since yeah. The Insane. Insane. Yeah, everything. Well, prices have gone up on everything, haven't they? I think like the, the broader economic situation, you know, with energy and uh, I think that affects everything as well. Then it affects transport costs, it affects manufacturing and materials and, and that in itself is, yeah, I don't know if it's that or if it's Brexit. I mean, I, I think definitely the fact that a lot of stuff you know, across all industries, you know, comes via Europe or from Europe, mm. I think will we'll definitely have an effect. But I, I don't know if it's that or, or a mixture of the two. But yeah, I mean, everything is expensive right now. My guitar strings are like double what they used to be. It's crazy. No, I was gonna say you've got a triple whammy of like the extra bureaucracy with being able to work with Europe. You've got, um, you know, the, the falling pound as well, of course, right. you know, and you right. then got inflation. Uh, and like not one of these things solves the, the problem on its own, of course, but they were all yeah. created by basically the same thing. So this you right. know, same same problem but different solutions. Yeah, um, yeah. I, that makes I, sense. I remember because I was campaigning during 2016, um, you know, against Brexit, and I remember trying to think what is the simplest way of explaining what the value of a pound is. It's actually complicated. People don't get it because a pound's a pound, right? A pound's what do you mean a pound's can be worth something different? A pound is a pound, right? I had to kind of like think of memes that involved like numbers of oranges you could buy or something like that, you know. And it's just <laughs> like how simple do you have to make it? I, I think you raise a very, very valid, 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 sorry, very valid and interesting point there because for on the Brexiteer side, it was very easy. They were just saying, look, everything's yeah. going to be better. You know, your your life is difficult at the moment. Look at all this bureaucracy. Fishermen, they want to fish more. They want to sell more. And Farage and others were able to sell it very easily because they said, look, people were going through a very difficult period. There was austerity. There was uh, corruption within the Conservative Party, disenfranchisement with politics. You know, people were you know, really upset about the situation. And it was very easy for the Brexiteers to say, oh, well, look, we'll just do all these things and make it easier. And it was difficult, I think, for the Remain side to promote the European Union um, and convince people that actually it's better to be part of Europe. For example, so uh, there is this problem now. Get the Tories out. Could a silver lining be that because of Brexit that PR could come in, that, that maybe the Labour Party would embrace PR? Um, could, could you actually explain to people who may be not familiar... The, the difference between first past the post and proportional representation. Yeah, I, so it's it's probably most important to de to describe the different different outcomes rather than the different the way that they actually work because there's lots of different ways they could both work and we haven't settled on a way of, of PR yet. But essentially, the idea of PR is that you end up with uh, parties getting the percentage of seats that they got for the percentage of the vote they got. So if a, if a, if the Green Party got six percent of the vote, they should get six percent of the seats in Parliament. 
that's essentially it that's the whole thing and then you uh you know there are several different ways of actually designing your electoral system to make that happen um you you know there's a bunch of principles that include uh, making sure there is still a local mp connection as well because uh, that's one of the big gripes that people might have because so, one of the um, versions of pr uh, has much bigger regions rather than small constituencies um, so there's there's various ways to design it to make it uh, to make to make the connection between the person voting and the people making decisions for you essentially um, but the idea is that you know the, the representation should be proportional proportionate to the vote it's that it's that simple um you know and if you look back historically uh, there you know we've had uh, majority governments in parliament you know quite a lot where you know in fact pretty much all the time right where a party has had the most seats but i think only one time in the last 100 years has a party got the most votes you know uh, sorry a majority of the votes you know so we've often had parties with 100% of the power with any you know as low as 35% of the vote um which means 65% of people are not being represented at all and you could argue and this is a good controversial point but you could argue that if when you have a conservative government in uh, and let's say they won on 35% of the vote that because of who the conservative government are those 35% of people aren't represented either right so uh, in fact <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because they just represent themselves, don't they? The conservatives, they don't actually represent the voters at all. They kind of who do they you know, represent? Five um, evil. Well, their own yeah. their own interests, whatever that might be, allegedly. You know, I mean, um, it doesn't Rich take people. a lot to look into. You know, um, all the different shareholdings a lot of them have, or who might have given them money. Um, landlords. Did I see this? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of landlords. There's a large percentage of Tories are landlords and uh, landowners, or have you know. By proxy interests in in property as well, um, and didn't they? I saw this week that the um, the anonymity of a donation, um, the amount of money has gone up now to eleven thousand um, pounds. So you know they can now take more money anonymously as well, essentially, right? So uh, all sorts of issues. But so if you, Putin will be happy. Yeah, well, <laughs> allegedly well, we should just call shows team. allegedly. <laughs> so if you imagine what a I government don't. that is more represented looks like, you know, let's say for example. Uh, you know that um, uh, you know six percent of of the MPs were Green MPs. You know what that really is doing is representing the people of the country, right? And the people of the country predominantly have voted centre left for generations, for as long as we, you know you can imagine. Um, and that is reflected when you look at policy support as well. You know, and so if you look at pretty much any policy, <laughs> there is predominant support for it across the political spectrum. Uh, you know, sorry, progressive progressive policy. So everything from like rewilding to UBI. To you know, um, nationalised services. Even on the right wing, there is support for those progressive ideas, and the, and Brexit coming back full circle um, is a great example of how the right wing used progressive ideas to fight campaigns. Because one of the biggest things in Brexit was about funding the NHS, a progressive mm. idea, right? So they knew that actually most people, if they wanted to get a majority for the first time, they need to get a majority for a very long time. Uh, they had to fight it on a progressive idea because the country is progressive, right? So yeah, so basically, if you get progressive if you get proportional representation you get progressive policy by by result that's the that's the point i'm i'm gonna be evil and bring up what madge big madge brought up last week and he said but aren't those numbers also based around the fact that we've got a first the past post system so the reason that people are voting you've got that voting demographic is because yeah. it's first past the post so we don't actually know because we haven't had proportional whether or not that would still be reflected in the vote with that how how evil is that have i just thrown a <laughs> no i mean so there's a lot of arguments but ultimately you know what it comes down to is a philosophical thing you want people's votes to count or you don't you know i mean that's that's kind of it right 
Um, in, in terms of the result, well, it's not a silver bullet. PR is a, lin a linchpin rather than a silver bullet, right? Uh, we also have a huge issue with our media in this country because the, the right wing are able to win because the media support them so much. Imagine if that all just disappeared. So, like, the Tories would be a single-digit percentage party, wouldn't they, right? Um, Isn't that what's you know, happening? <laughs> precisely, precisely. So it's actually a reflection. So things like tactical voting are a kind of preview reflection of what might actually happen. Uh, mm. Because it is about being able to distribute a vote in a more um, honest way in terms of what an outcome is that people want, right? Um, and it, a lot of people whose votes don't count uh, start to count, and so they get used. And that's what happens in PR as well. The, the way you know your vote doesn't count is if no one comes asking for it. And when was the last time someone knocked on your door asking for a vote? It would, would, it would potentially eliminate the idea of safe seats as well, because you would have... Um, more people yeah. running and more people having a chance of you know getting a vote but also I, I, I like the idea of PR where you have you know at the moment many people say okay I'm going to hold my nose and I'm going to vote for the Labour Party even though I disagree with Keir Starmer because I need to get the Tories out and I fully agree with that but it, it does it's not good in the long term because it, it convinces people that I'm voting against something and not actually voting for something and PR would allow people to actually vote for. Some, yeah, I'm going to vote for the for this candidate because I believe in this candidate and I think this candidate represents me. Instead of I'm I'm voting again. And I think this is a big problem for the Labour Party if they don't bring in PR, they run the risk of people voting against them at the next general election, and the Tories are back in again. I am. Um... Yeah, anything could happen at the next election. But just to sorry, Alex, just to come out to your point there, you know. The very this this very idea of you know uh, the the tension between I'm going to hold my nose versus I'm I want to vote with my heart right um, tactical voting is a horrible thing we shouldn't have to do I really hope this is the last time we have to do it yeah. but the very reason we're using tactical voting as a as a platform for the campaign is to get that exact point you just made into the narrative right so tactical voting to get the Tories out absolutely but let's make it the last time because you know we shouldn't have to do it right we should be able to yeah. vote for who we want to and I did see a poll that um someone big on Twitter did so it's not a very scientific one about who you would vote for under PR right and the Green Party goes like this you know and I think it would result in about 100 Green MPs you know for you know just on a very unscientific poll um but you yeah. know when people's votes start to count they really do vote with their heart right and you have a yeah. very different shape of the country sorry Alex go where does your where's your heart lie, James? Because obviously we were talking off before we came on about you having support for certain parties. Who do you vote for in Wales? Can we say Wales um, anymore? Do we actually should we actually just change that? What do you mean? What do you mean? In what sense? <laughs> it's called Wales. <laughs> yeah, you can say Wales. <laughs> but, but isn't there Jacob also Rees the Mark Welsh... considers it an English county, but I don't think we're down that road yet. Jacob Rees Mogg <laughs> considers it a garden. <laughs> Yeah, a region of England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I technically is. agree with you, Josh. I wouldn't. I, I, I had, um, I had make votes matter on my podcast. We did a whole episode explaining about proportional representation, and I think that until we have that, we're we're not really truly living in a representative democracy. We've got two parties, which you couldn't get a, a rizzle of paper between. Really, they all represent the same one percent of rich. I'm not. I'm going to be sworn at me. Look at that. Look at the self control on me. <laughs> I swear it makes up half my vocabularies. This is very challenging for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, if Labour do one thing, I mean, I, I, I detest Keir Starmer. I'm, a, I'm an old traditional Labour guy. Tony Benn is my hero. I hate Tony Blair more than I hate Margaret Thatcher, which is a lot of hate for a Welshman. You know, like, I loathe Keir Starmer because he, he doesn't represent Labour. We don't have any ideological 
like spectrum anymore. They're both kind of representing the same people, which is not any of us. Um, but if they do one thing, if they just do one thing, if they bring in PR, then that would change everything because I'm a member of the Green Party, but I'll have to vote Labour next time, not because I like them you know, anymore. Mm. You know, I used to, but, I, but Green is where my heart has been for, for many years now. But I'm not going to be voting for that party. I'm going to be voting for the whoever I know can get the Tories out. And as exactly as Max said, I'm not voting for something, I'm voting against something. And that is just, that's not democracy. You know, and and the Labour really, and under the, you know, Keir Starmer, are they really going to, you know, represent true traditional Labour values that benefit regular people in this country? Of course they're not. Of course they're not. So the reason I brought up the, the word Wales is because that's Anglo-Saxon and it means foreigner. William is now the Prince of Foreigners. And that's why Cornwall is Cornwall, because it's Corn Foreigners, Cornish. So that's why I was asking about the word, and that's why I was a bit curious as to whether or not that's even an appropriate term anymore. How's the Senate voted for? I've forgotten, because Scotland's got the mix of first-past-the-post and, and proportional. How's the Senate voted for? Is it proportional, and, or is it just first-past-the-post? I think it's... I'm not entirely sure. I pay very little attention to... Um the daily minutiae of politics because my, I, I tend to function under the general um, understanding that they're all bastards. <laughs> you know, so, so <laughs> I, until we've got general meaningful systemic change, like proportional representation generally across the whole you know, um, national voting spectrum, I pay little attention because I find that much of the detail is meaningless really in the grand scheme of how it affects people's lives. So, and I, you know, the Senate, I think, is pretty much a boys club from what I can tell. So I pay very little attention. So I don't actually know. Guys? Pretty entertaining. At least he's got like some gusto about him more than what I've seen with like Starmer. It's not difficult though, oh. is it, to have more gusto than Starmer, let's be fair. <laughs> so, you know, I think... <clears throat> we, you know, because we're promoting tactical voting, it's all about voting something out, not voting something in. So, you know, we get mm -hmm. we get called out, or, oh, you must be paid by Labour, or you know, the other side are like, oh, you must be getting paid by the Lib Dems. And no one can decide who's paying us, you know. But we're all, we're a bunch of volunteers; no one's paying us at the moment. Um, but so, you know, voting against something is horrible. But I, I also set this baseline right because the other the other argument is that they're all the same. And, you know, saying that they're all the same is actually part of the right wing strategy to you know, reduce turnout. Right. And of course, they're not all the same. There are people in the Labour Party that are amazing, you know, um, but a baseline, mm. I think, is that, you know, Labour will be better. Um, and even if it's just in one way, and that is that we can have a dialogue with them, a true dialogue as a country, which we absolutely cannot have with the Conservative Party. So even if it's just that, it's worth it. I think it will be a lot more than that. I think they will be better. The challenge and the thing about representation is will they be better enough right will they be will they actually represent you know the, the you know the desires and the aspirations of the country you know i mean that's that's the real thing that i think that you know first past the post ironically which you know a lot of people say oh both the big parties really love first past the post but first past the post actually for the labor party has to keep them treading a very thin line between pleasing a lot of people on the right wing as well weirdly you know and under pr you know, they, you know, I don't think any party would get a majority under PR for a very long time. It, the whole landscape would have to change. Um, but would they be the biggest party with the most influence? That's very, very likely, you know. Uh, and at the same time, they would be pulled to the left with a larger Green representation, probably a larger uh, uh, Lib Dem representation, which weirdly are more left in, in quite a lot of ways as well. Um, so in the fight for proportional representation, I simply say, is just a continued fight for representation. Yeah. You know, yeah. different people have won their vote over the over the last hundreds of years, but some people's votes still count more than others. And so we're <laughs> still in the same fight.
It's quite strange because in some ways I probably would have voted for the SNP, which is also quite weird because obviously they wouldn't want to branch out of Scotland. But if there was a proportional representation, I've liked their policies more than I've liked. Yeah, exactly. Or green. Um, So I'm going to give you all a magic wish. What type of system would you create if you could wave your magic wand and create this new system? How would it look? So, you know, you've got the monarchy, you've got the lords, you've got the Supreme Court, you've got the commons, you've got the PM. What type of system do you think you would come up with? And Josh, I'm going to throw it over to you first as, <laughs> as you're leading do, the charge. Do, do, you want, do you want the whole ecosystem or do you want just one or two things? Um, uh, yeah, a brief overview. I mean, so I might take this in a slight bit of a tangent, um, but I, so I used to work in uh, the government digital service, uh, GDS, um, which was part of the cabinet office. Uh, this is back in 2010 to 2012, so quite a long time ago now, but um gds you know makes gov.uk the new website right everyone remembers that a new website started you know so i was part of that team um you know a few hundred people so you know not not core part of the team really um but the part i was involved in was uh, procurement right so i've got a background in government procurement weirdly which is quite a hot topic at the moment um Mm. but so the government website is kind of like this front end to the services that government delivers right and government if you if you kind of like you know um reduce it down that's all it does it just delivers services to its citizens yeah um and sometimes that's giving citizens money sometimes that's building roads for citizens whatever it might be and of course uh non-citizens that are here as well so there are you know it's not just the citizens of the country um and at gds the government digital service what we were really trying to do was make sure that those services were fit for purpose and were doing their job you know, and that they were efficient and that they served <clears throat> people's actual needs and that kind of thing, you know. But ultimately, you're given a policy. You know, you're not actually, you know, uh, looking at what is needing to be done in the country. The policies are given to you by the government of the day, you know. And so however much better you can make the service, if the policy is shitty, uh, then unfortunately that's as far as it can go, right? And so what I would really like, and this is what a lot of people talk about when they talk about a second house, is a proper feedback system that actually represents uh, what people need from a policy point of view, you know, so whether that be um, just literally data and research that would come from delivering a service or from panels of experts, that kind of thing, but something that actually says, you know, how do we measure if government's doing a good job or not, and not just financially, and how do we feed that in, in a, in a proper cycle about how we deliver what government does for people, you know, so you kind of, you, re- you reduce the ideology and philosophy that comes from policymaking. Um, and you increase the uh, the actual true measurements of whether government is doing a good job or not. Because how do we know at the moment whether, I mean, you, you, you often know only when it hits the headlines that government's doing a crap job, right? Um, but how do you know government's doing a good job? It's quite a different thing, you know, and the money is just abstract. So that's a really hard thing to, for people to wrap their brains around. So I would say a feedback loop of true needs into government, I suppose, would be one of my big things. And I think that comes from representation as well. So you keep the comments <laughs> and make it proportional? Oh, don't put words in my mouth. Um, so... Um, <laughs> No, I think the Lords needs reform as well. Obviously, I probably I probably would get rid of the monarchy in some form as well, because as we saw, you know, Charles basically bored to be there the other day, you know, not really wanting to say anything. He was saying, what is the point of him if he can't actually stop things? And we saw that with the Queen and Brexit as well. Right. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, make a last generation of, of royals, just like a last generation of smokers, um, you know, uh, no, no more of them. Have to, um, you have to be a royal outside in the rain. If you're yeah, going to be a royal, I mean, you've got to go outside. Right. It's just like I don't think they even enjoy it, really, do they? You know, like look, look at we're, all, we're all over it. Look at Andrew uh, enjoyed himself quite a bit, didn't he? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's uh, <laughs> that's come up. That came up 
yesterday night, a senator, the only reason I bring it up because it came up last night, a US senator has put a information request to Epstein's estate for all the flight logs. And since we're in the business of issuing subpoenas now, here are a few more that I've filed. A subpoena to Jeffrey Epstein's estate to provide the flight logs for his private plane, given the numerous allegations of human trafficking and sexual abuse surrounding Mr. Epstein, I think it is very important that we identify everybody that was on that plane and how many trips they took on that plane and the destinations to which they arrived. That's going to be interesting because someone else pointed out when they released that, it was like, how is there only one woman that's been arrested? And yet all those allegations have been put forward, which I thought was interesting. I'm not going (laughs) to... Is that it, Josh? Would that would that be it? So uh, I would probably look at the council tax system as well. I think people don't often understand, the, um, you know, what their local council represent- representation does versus the local MP representation uh, and the way the budgets work and what they're both responsible for. I think that needs to be, you know, explained and reformed. Um, council tax doesn't even need to be a thing. Um, and then there's also another tax uh, reform, which I'm just learning about, which is uh, land value tax. As well, so I would look at I would look at that as well. Yeah, we're going to come on to the housing land. I promise that that will come on. No, well, I'm an old school traditional Labour guy, so I mean, I'm simple, man. You know, I think like we should have true representative democracy. I think proportional representation is is a big key for that. Uh, I don't think um, you can truly call yourself a democracy when you got dudes sitting in gold hats you know that cost more than most people's life earnings you know what i mean mincing around in some golden robe i mean come on what is this a fairy tale the monarchy have got to go come on grow up um the house of lords you know i know there are arguments for keeping them you know checks and balances and stuff but really they're not elected they should go uh we should have a, a one elected house that should be based on proportional representation and then i think you've got a true representation of society um what happens thereafter is down to the electorate i suppose isn't it you know i mean there 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 are certain um conversations that need to be had i think around um media accountability as well you know um i mean brexit is a perfect example of how people were just misled into voting for something that was completely detrimental you know for most people's lives um the media is is way too powerful and way too in the pocket of the establishment so there, there needs to be some kind of a change there um and i think rich people should have to start paying their taxes you know i think that you know if we if we looted the tax havens and and you know the billionaires of this planet and the overlords of the world had to pay you know their fair share i think we'd all be far better off but i think yeah pr i think genuine democracy i think you know and then it's up to us to decide what we want isn't it you know on the detail nice exactly yeah i don't think many of us can argue with any of that echo chamber The, the tax one's a really hard one, isn't it? I mean, I know we're going to talk about that later, but like, there's so much mis- so much misinformation about how tax works and you know who pays it and what it's for and all that kind of stuff. And there's been a kind of like war against taxation as well, right? Um, which, you know, I mean, how how do you th- where do you think all of this stuff came from? <laughs> you know, what do you think society is? <laughs> like, you know, yeah, big questions, and yet not not really. It was interesting when you were saying like people don't realize about the the, the how, how do you gauge how good society is right now and it was because you and we will go on to this the rent rent is a good way of gauging 
if your rent is 50% of your income, <laughs> then something's gone wrong. Um, Max, what, what would your yeah, perfect scenario I, I be? Think, I think both guys had great ideas, like more democracy, but also I like the idea of maybe, if I'm understanding Josh correctly, a more technocratic um, House of Lords. So something that is focusing more on, on what society need as opposed to just um, blocking bills from the House of Commons. For me, something I'd love to see in the House of Commons, and this is just its not a really important point, but I'd love to see when a leader, a leader of the opposition or an MP stands up and asks a question, that the Prime Minister or the Minister would actually say, oh, that's, an, that's an interesting question, here is the answer. <laughs> we, don't, we never see that. It sounds really stupid, but like in any other situation... <laughs> Like if you think of a like in a public administration or something like that, if you're asking somebody a question, their job is to answer that question, is to provide information. And instead we see this sort of ridiculous theater of, oh, well, what about labor when they were in power and they didn't do this? And, and this doesn't help anyone. It, it's just about avoiding avoiding the, the real issues, avoiding. And it's I actually I've mentioned it before on the channel. It's frankly insulting to the electorate because you, you, you send politicians to parliament to represent you and ask questions on your behalf and those questions are not answered and there's no response from the government minister i, I just said uh, it'd be wonderful to see you know kirstammer or whoever stands up and says uh, what are you doing about cost of living and they said that's an interesting question yes this is what we're going to do and you never see that it sounds maybe a bit stupid but it, it's just extracting the theater it'd be really boring <laughs> it make the house of common sessions you, um, is really boring but there's josh go, uh, sorry james go ahead i'd be interested i'm gonna put a question out to the floor um i have i've not processed this myself yet. i have no opinion on it or thought about it but just as you were talking there max i was thinking do you think that the um the arrival of ai could have an influence in in taking some of the bullshit out of parliamentary you know tit for tat and stuff like that you know if, if ai had some kind of influence because ai is not subject to greed or ego it, you know it's fact-based you know could could a i mean I'm, I'm just thinking of this on the spot now than if you guys have pondered this before but are there any conversations around the influence that ai could have in political discourse but or do I, you think I, it could have a role no, I, I think it could have I, i'm just thinking just on the fly and i'm thinking you know something where for example the prime minister is speaking and you could have a ticker on the side which is you know, fact-checking, fact-checking. Like, you know, you can't, a, a journalist doesn't have the, the speed to do this, but an AI could be, yeah. you know, as the politician is speaking on the side, it's saying, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, yeah. or this is right. uh, this is wrong, or the the real information is here. So it, it, this could be this could be a way of holding. And then people would be reading what's been said and saying, wait, wait a minute, why is the politician saying this? So fact-checking is the first thing I thought of as well uh, when this is when this has come up. You know, you still, I mean, the AIs are not quite there yet, but that is definitely mm -hmm. the kind of thing that they should be able, that they would be able to like provide a first layer of. For sure. I mean, the, the problem is that even with that, right? I mean, they'll just say whatever they want because what they really want is the soundbite that they can then put out somewhere else. Right. You know, so not not. You know, where would you put that clarification? Would you just put it on Parliament TV, or would you force the Daily Mail to put it next to the headline that they then right. you know write about it? You know, so I think yeah, th there is no silver bullet to any of this stuff. Um, I think you know you need to create layers and layers of accountability um, essentially. AI is um is a tricky one for that because it's only good as the data is put into it. And during the conference that was held at Bletchley Park, there were comments suggesting that AI was showing elements of racism and you're going right <laughs> that can only be down to the fact that someone is be either it's gauging information that's being plugged into it and the information it's getting is probably you know 
it must be getting a I don't know where that info comes from and who's plugging in, but let's say they just gave a large broad base of information. It could literally be looking at far right material and thinking that there's some sort of scientific evidence to back it up because they'll claim they've got scientific evidence to back it up, which then allows it to think it's racist. I guess, I guess the other thing is, and this is quite an interesting one. Would you have, let's say there was a presidential system in the UK. Would you have an AI president? And I'll, I'll, I'll add this, because um, the AI tech can still be hacked. So it can be corrupted as much as Boris Johnson's been corrupted, most likely by the KGB and those sex parties he went to. So if the AI could be hacked and Boris Johnson can be, you know, it doesn't look very good for him, uh, although he was really investigated. Uh, Actually, that's not true. The Italian Italian Secret Service came out and said they had been following. They said that the... Bunga party, bunga bunga parties, which is this Italian slang, I believe, Max. Would you know what that slang is, Max? The, Have you uh, been to a bunga bunga party, Max? Is <laughs> not yet. Thanks, <laughs> Max. What's happening in there, Max? Come on. Well, the Italian Secret Service have come out and said, or uh, ex-members of the parliament uh, who have got reports from the Italian Secret Service said that house that he went to were for sex parties, and it was people have cameras, and mics everywhere. So then you go, well, what on earth has been going on? With Boris going there, he's a moron. But anyway, the point is, you can get corruption in both the AI technology and corruption in politics. So does that work? So the the real question is to all three of you: Would you have an AI president if we had a presidential system? Do you think it'd be better than having Boris? <laughs> there is um, so one of the one of the Isaac Asimov uh, short stories in iRobot is all about this. Um, and uh, I won't I won't spoil it, but um, you know the real question is: Do you want people to know uh, that it's an AI or not, right? Um, and uh, it goes back to the training again, you know, because in the Asimov story, uh, you know, the robots or the AIs are benevolent, of course, but they're keeping things just like you know just where they should be. They're not trying to create a utopia, and they're not in control, you know, as <clears> such. <throat> But they're just kind of like tilting the scales here and there to make to push things in in a in a healthy direction. Um, but the point is, as soon as you know that, right, then you know uh, you, it's it's like waking up from a dream, isn't it? You know, it's a it's a little bit um, jarring, and you kind of you know have all sorts of different feelings about it. And so knowing it is the is the thing. Would you want to know or not? Because um, people people are going to react very differently. Um, so I don't know if I would want it, <laughs> but it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And I think certainly they could make better decisions because they yeah. they can they can process data, you know, better than we can. You know, we just simply can't. I'm gonna actually I'm gonna take that back. I'm not gonna say better decisions. They'll they'll yeah. they might be um, more efficient at making decisions. <laughs> James, not, not necessarily be better. Well, I mean, you don't give us great options there, Alex, for that particular <laughs> question. You know, would you rather AI or Boris Johnson? I'd take a fucking teapot over Boris Johnson. <laughs> Um, I, I, I take I take a pair of shoes over Boris Johnson, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, ultimately, the the function of government is meant to be boring, isn't it? It's it's a public service. It's not we're not meant to have these grand personalities and you know TV personas and people with daft haircuts and you know we're not we're not supposed to have it. It's supposed to be dead boring. So I mean, I'm not against the idea of of AI having a role in that. You know, if it can be based on actual information and studies and facts um, in, in, a, in, a, in a system that can process all of that way 
more efficiently than than humans can you know arguing with each other and stuff for months at a time then yeah i can see that there could be a lot of benefit to that but i'm sure that you know that that system is uh, is far away from us at present and will come with a lot of problems in it, in and of itself as well but yeah i mean you know i think we need to take the sexiness out of politics and and, and make it boring again you know let's make politics boring again. both would achieve that <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point, James. Like, you know, uh, I can never remember who said this, but, um, you know, there is this idea that a functioning democracy is one that you don't spend all your time, you know, paying attention to, you know, and the, the, an indication that your democracy is not functioning is one that you're talking about all the time. Right. Right. Um, and we it's, are talking it's, about it's it. Like I mean, we have been. It's like plumbing. You, yeah. you want it to work. You don't want to have to be dealing with this every day. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the flip side of the coin is, of course, you know, our government is in charge of one of the biggest budgets on the planet, you know, and can literally make decisions that could empower us and make society incredible. Right. So government could be incredibly exciting in that from that point of view. Um, but also, yeah, just it should just get out of the way and like facilitate us getting on with our lives, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I mean, that not in a kind of like Mad Max libertarian kind of way, um, but like, you know, yeah. it could be looking at what could make what could make our lives better and just be doing it without making a big fuss. Yeah. More of a Star yeah. Trek way. Star Trek, not Mad Max, hundred percent. You know, if it was a binary binary choice between those two things, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the irony is that you know we're going to head towards one of them anyway, right? Because both of them involve you know not having a job and and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just who gets to have all the result of it. You know, one one person or all of us. That's that's the yeah. difference. Yeah, Max. Um, so I, I think when it comes to an AI, there's two possibilities. You could have a utopia or you could have a Mad, Mad Max situation. Like, for example, the, the AI may decide, well, actually, humans are a problem. I can be much more efficient without the humans. So it could be like the Tories during austerity. Let's just get rid of the humans. Um, Kill the poor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, but on the other side, it could, you know, an AI <clears throat> look at, okay, we have these problems. How do we resolve them? And it wouldn't, do, it wouldn't be looking for votes. So it would, it, it, maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but it'd be almost like the European Union. What, what does the European Union do? The European Commission looks at places that are deprived and it sends money there because that's what's, what's, what, that's what's necessary. While if you look at political parties, they send money where they can win votes or where they can prop up their local MP. So an AI wouldn't, wouldn't be looking for votes. It would say, okay, well, this is a deprived area. How do we resolve this problem? These are the ways to resolve the problem. And it would do it apolitically. And I think this would be like a sort of technocratic government. Um, the problem, of course, is if it makes a mistake, the mistake could be grave and we may not and we wouldn't be able to pull the plug because, you know, we have this idea that an AI is in a box. And well, if anything goes wrong, we just pull the plug or switch it off. It, it, will, it wouldn't be like that. And we couldn't get rid of it. And if we did try to get rid of it, <laughs> we've seen so many movies to explain what happens when we try to get rid oh, yeah. of it. But in, in those scenarios, the humans win in the end. But with an AI, a super intelligent AI, it would win, not us. So we wouldn't be in control of it. But then maybe we, we would end up like uh, house cats where it would be doing all the work and we'd be just relaxing and scratching ourselves every day. <laughs> this segues in. We wanted to talk about tax. And this arguably is the big piece in the puzzle that would fix a lot of problems. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's just something I'm I'm just learning about, really. But, um, you know, I think housing, because it, it is uh, an element of society that is reliant on a finite resource, right? The, the literal land that we put the housing on, um, you know, it's it creates opportunity for, for monopoly, right? Just like anything else where there is a natural resource. 
Um, and with something so fundamental to the you know good functioning of society, you have to ask, just like you would with any other national nationalized or sorry public service or service to the public before it gets nationalized, uh, is there an interest in it being owned by someone? Right at one extreme, um, you know. So um, taking that whole spectrum of you know private land ownership down to the kind of communist version of like no one owns any lands and everyone's got somewhere to live. There's clearly a lot of room in between for you know some very sensible policy. Um, but ultimately, if I, I like to think about the outcomes more than the solutions, because the outcomes are what's really important. Um, so ultimately, an outcome of everyone having safe, guaranteed, good quality housing is a huge improvement to pretty much every other aspect of society, right? Um, you know, uh, if, you, if you look at uh, a lot of the things that the Tories have been, you know, basically, uh, you know, or any right-wing government basing policy on, it's all about, you know, crime and order and all this stuff. But they never actually want to solve the real problems that, you know, um, create the crime in the first place. And housing is a huge part of that solution. You know, a lot of, you know, um, crime happens um, because people are so desperate, right? Give someone somewhere to live, and it just re removes one of the hugest, um, you know, stresses on someone's lives. You know, it actually is the first step towards, you know, um, you know, everything else that they can do. So it might be going back into education or getting a job or, you know, getting healthy. You know, um, or even just having an address so they can vote, right? That kind of stuff. You know, so housing is kind of like it's again not a silver bullet. You know, there are no silver bullets, but it's it's a big it's it's almost there. Right, you solve that and um you know you solve a lot of other things there's this video that i share quite a lot by um, someone called brit monkey on youtube and uh, it's i think it's called the housing crisis is the everything crisis you know um and if you start to think about housing um in a much more kind of um you know systems based way of thinking about how housing fits into everything else in society uh, you can address ecological problems as well um you, you know so you've got the economy the ecology um you know um and and society and kind of personal and people's personal development and issues all start to get solved at once if you're thinking about you know what society genuinely is right it's people working together essentially to do things like you know use the economy of scale right you know i'm going to go and um, farm some chickens you're going to go and make some shoes uh, i don't have to worry about making shoes because i can trade my chickens with you that's the basis of society we're still in that. And what you get from society is community. And what you get from community is things like safety, right? And you know, companionship and all that kind of stuff, right? Housing creates community. And so you've also got to think about, um, you know, not just housing as houses, but as homes, as part of a, you know, a group of other people's homes and what that's really like as well. And if you look at, um, you know, the non-existent, but also quite existent Tory housing policy, um, you know, it's basically kind of like, can we get Barrett's to build some cardboard houses somewhere in a field? You know, they're not actually thinking about what it means to live in a house, you know, what, what, what a house is. A house is a home. You know, it's not just a number. You know, so when they say we're going to make or a million houses, it, that's not the point. That is just such a superficial, non-important measure. It's like, are they going to be good houses, you know, for the environment, for the community? You know, are they actually going to deliver what people need from a house? Uh, a really big one is uh, mobility as your situation changes, right? You know, um, what about um, getting married, having kids when I mean, you're living in a one-bed flat somewhere? You know, they they think, oh, that creates a market. It's like, well, a market isn't very useful if actually your outcome that you're trying to create is, you know, a strong society. You know, just let it make it be easy for people to have the housing that they need, to, you know, dependent on their situation. 
Um, and that comes down to probably not not a personal ownership of a house in some way. But there are other models, you know, and, and like we, we tend to think in very binary terms. And when we say, you know, people don't own their houses, we're like, oh, right, well, then the government must own all the houses. But again, no, there are lots of different models for this. Housing cooperatives are a thing, for example, you know, where you have collective ownership over several houses. Um, you can have land trusts, again, where community owned, um, you know, so you can be a member of one of those and the trust owns the house or, the, you know, the land that houses are on. Um, and within those systems, you can create mobility. You can give people the options as things evolve. So, yeah, I think it, I think it really is one of the everything solutions. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bit of a, uh, a long monologue about housing, and I'm not an expert. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Max? Um, I was just thinking, like, I've been comparing Ireland and Britain are quite similar when it comes to renting and the housing problems. And Dublin, in particular, is an absolute disaster. There are stories of people buying garden sheds and renting them out as uh, as flats quote unquote but something i've noticed here in italy is for example there are there are very strong protections for renters so for example there is a four-year and eight-year lease in a sense where you can you're guaranteed a roof over your head for the next four years at minimum and then it can be agreed with the the landlord for example after and this is in private renting of course and there are other models available but as most people are private renters, um, I think security is a real issue that many people have. Like this idea, you know, this a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, uh, there was talk about getting rid of uh, Section 21 where, in, in the UK where um, landlords can just kick people out for, for no-fault evictions, in, in no-fault evictions. So this, getting rid of that would be a great thing, but it, it, there are still ways that people can be, you know, removed from their homes. And yeah we have to move away from this idea of, of property as being uh, an asset and more as something that's fund fundamental to society but I, I you know we, we need to completely change our way of thinking but I, I think a big problem is that we don't have consensus in in politics that we need to deal with the housing crisis like you'll hear you know this sort of language from the from from politicians from both parties yeah there's a problem where we need to fix it but there's no real consensus you know i think a big problem also is that you have political parties who are okay well i'm going to be in power for four or five years i'm going to focus on those four and five four or five years and never have any long-term policy because there is no real long-term policy in place on either side it's all about short-term <laughs> fixes and, you know, when is this crisis going to be resolved? It doesn't seem to be ever going to be resolved. Sorry to be a bit pessimistic, but that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, there's the tech that can do it. I've, I've been saying it for over a year. You've got the technology available with 3D printing, house printing, which, again, no one's talking about. I've got another story to tell you, actually. I'll tell you off air on something I've just done, which is quite interesting. But um, people didn't know about it within the sector or don't appear to know about it within the sector. But 3D printing, you can build a house, two-story house. I'm not suggesting it, you just build two-story houses. You can build a five-story. But just to give you an idea, you can build the outer structure of a house with a 3D printer, seven guys, in two weeks. Like, you can't do that in any with bricklaying or anything else. And that's not to say that, you know, bricklaying isn't a beautiful art and can make a house look beautiful. Um, it's just the fact that we're not building enough. And then it comes on to that thing which you get a lot of pushback on of have the land. I think Fanny brought it up in a video where he turned around and said, if you look at the statistics, it's roughly the amount of urbanised area in the UK is the same amount of territory we lose with the tide on a daily basis. 
So you're going, okay, so we do have land. Or another statistic, which is absolutely fascinating, you can fit the whole world's population standing up on the Isle of Wight. So we're just not nice. using the space correctly. Which in, is in, this country, in this country, there's more land used by golf courses than housing. Shock. It's all, I mean, I mean, the whole thing yeah. for the wealthy. I, I, you're going to hate me for this, and I'm going to say this caveat before I say it. Even a broken clock is, I can see you all adjusting your headsets, like, getting ready to hear. <laughs> feel, get brace, ready to brace. Yeah, come on, come on. Um, even, a blo- even a broken clock can be right twice a day. It looks like the, the, the Tories haven't been able to get rid of freeholds, but they're phasing out, so no, any new builds, you won't be able to have a freehold. The freehold system alone is horrific. Like you have no control over your property if you if you bought an apartment within a, a block and someone else owns the freehold, the freeholder has almost unlimited power over you. And if you want to challenge anything, so they could so let's say see, I heard a friend of mine told me this. The freeholder wanted to renovate their block of flats, which I think has ten flats in it, and he wanted to renovate the internals and the externals. And he was charging twenty five thousand per flat. And they've now had to take him to court to be able to resolve this because that fee is so ridiculous. And there's workarounds. There's BBC did a program on it. If you're a freeholder, if you have your freehold company and then you set up a separate company, you can bill yourself for the work. You can bill yourself for the management of the property and say, I'm going to take a thousand pound cut, 10,000 pound cut. That alone is also, like- There's also the, the problem with the freehold where it comes to like the, the time on the freehold. So there are freeholds for 99 years, there are freeholds for 25 years, freeholds yeah. for 999 years. And, and you know you can use that to manipulate um, someone who's, who, who wants to, to buy the, the property or sell the property. If you don't pay that bill, they can remove you. So you don't actually own your property despite having a mortgage. Work that one out. So the, the inter- <laughs> this, is the, like, this is one of the arguments that people make against co-ops, right? Is that, you, oh, you, you don't own the property. But actually, you just happen to be in both roles. You're both tenant and landlord at the same time, right? So you, 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 are, you are the one that decides whether you know, there is maintenance needed. Um, and then you adjust your own rent to, to cover it, essentially. But not only that, you can do planning. You can plan ahead. You can say, oh, we might need to replace the roof in 30 years. Maybe we should put another fiver on the rent to cover it. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, really simple. And then you have a democratic process to decide amongst you what happens. You know, so this is a, a thing that happens. People do take over the freeholds of their apartment blocks, but just not in this country. But it does happen in other countries. But also you can start from scratch and do that. And then at the same time, if there's no profit involved, because why would you profit off yourself? Right? Um, the rent was also cheaper as well. <laughs> Well, yeah, but you can I, decide to do it democratically. You can be like, okay, do we want to make more money from our rent so we can go and do something with it, like buy another house and start another one, maybe, you know, that kind of thing. I think we lost. I remember time. living in Italy and trying to explain Italians' old system, and they looked at me as if I was nuts. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Nuts. What is this freehold system, Max? You you live there? I mean, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've been trying, trying to ex- I've been trying this? to explain it, and they're like, what are you talking about? And like, if you. If you own the property, you own the like. There is no f- leasehold, or there is no. I, I could. I don't fully understand it, so it's very difficult for me to explain it. <laughs> um, James, James, what we we didn't get a chance to get your take on it. What's your take on on housing? Uh, well, obviously, housing is a human right, isn't it? You know, it's not a house; it's a home. It's shelter. You know, and it's just it's just one of the many things about this country right now that is just 
in, in need of drastic and dramatic and urgent repair. And I think all of the solutions, like Josh has alluded to many of them, already exist. We kind of know the answers to all of these questions, but we are just trapped into a burning high-speed train that's being run off the end of a cliff by a bunch of madmen. And until we get rid of those guys and we have systemic uh, democratic change, I don't think anything else is going to change. Any of these other things are going to change. So we know the solutions to all of these things. They need to be attended to urgently, but it's not going to change as long as we've got these guys in power. So we've got to figure that out first, I think. But I don't think Labour are going to fix this. Because Starmer's already come out, and I think he said, over 10 years, we want to build one and a half million homes. You go, right, so that's 150,000 a year. But if you look to charities, homeless or involved in uh, homeless charities or charities involved in housing, you'll find that they're going, no, no, we need 400,000. And then you get on this bigger problem. You need, if you were to, to do that, and as I said, I think there is a solution to this, but no one's talking about it. And part of the reason they don't want to build more houses is because they're pro all these politicians are probably concerned with or what they think could happen, which is devalu devaluation of properties, which then affects the mortgage industry because it means you've got a mortgage maybe for 100,000, and then all of a sudden the property's worth 80 because you've constructed so many extra houses. I'm just... I'm. Playing, I'm but, being a bit of a devil. But the, but the thing is, saying, as James said, it's go on, go on, Josh. Well, the thing is, as James said, that house is still a home. Who cares what it's worth, right? If you're living in it and it's providing the service it's supposed to provide, what's well, I, the problem? Think, well, I think there's also another problem is that um, because the pension system has collapsed basically, and um, and and you were like Italy in particular, but maybe also the UK to a certain extent, we're heading to a situation where we have a, a shrinking younger population who are trying to up you know prop up uh, a crumbling pension system and a lot of uh, older people who, who bought houses back in the you know the the times the 60s 70s 80s when prices were cheap um are now looking at well actually i might need to sell my home to to pay for social care um now we i don't know whether that's the right thing or not but it's it's certainly um convinced a lot of uh, older people well it's actually good to have a house and if i don't uh, or maybe to rent it out or something to help pay for uh for social care or to prop up a pension sorry to, to prop up a pension um so yeah i, I think there there are fundamental problems that um reach out into different parts of society and but like but I, my my whole issue is that it comes back to PR. If we had PR, we would actually have politicians who really yes. care about the, these problems and really care about solving these problems. But at the moment, we have political parties who are chasing chasing headlines and not focusing on fundamental structural issues. They would have to think long term, and this is a long term issue, just like environmental issues yeah. are as well. Um, but again, you know, you're absolutely right. This comes down to representation because, like I said earlier, you know, everyone wants all the good stuff. Right. It's just that government won't do it, you know, and like James said, you know, we know the solutions to all this stuff. We have known the solutions to pretty much every problem humanity has. It's just that there's a, you know, a lack of political will to do any of it. You know, I mean, pick a problem. One of us could probably Google it in five minutes and find out what the solution to it is. We don't need to invent anything at the moment. You know, there's nothing we need to do. We have enough or we have enough resources. You name it. We've got enough of it. Um, it's, is it William Gibson who said it's just a distribution issue? Yeah, you know, essentially, and right. Marks. Yeah, you know, so there is enough food, water, energy, housing, you know, you, there is enough of all the stuff. And in this country, you know, we were the fifth largest economy in the world. We're now the sixth because of Brexit. But my God, that's still more than 200 other countries, right? Um, 
and yet we we you know we have this huge huge issue of uh you know the weight the wealth gap and poverty and it's like you know the right wing would just say oh the, you know, the country's full or there isn't enough money it's like well hang about you know if it's all about the economy and everything you're trying to do is growing the economy but the country isn't benefiting from that growth then i'm not convinced that's a good idea <laughs> you know like <laughs> you've got to you've got to relate these two things together for me for it to be meaningful if we're one of the richest countries in the world and yet everyone feels poor what's what what does that mean it's meaningless absolutely meaningless and at the same time you... you've got right-wing governments doing incredibly radical things all the time you know brexit was like one of the most radical things that's happened to this country in 100 years um and everyone's terrified of doing anything as radical in a positive way you know and it's like well I'm... yeah but you if you actually did these positive things, we might benefit from it and it wouldn't feel so radical then. It would just kind of like boost, you know, boost living in this country. Like Finland ends you, homeless you, you, by you... giving homeless people homes. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not hard. It's not Finland. Hard. Yeah. So you've, you've actually segued really nicely into the thing that I wasn't going to bring up, but you've actually brought it in so beautifully, Josh. I'm now going to bring it up. <laughs> Have you guys ever heard of a substance called terra preta? It means black soil in Portuguese. It's in the Amazon. They found loads of it, but they don't know where it's come from. And they're not a, they they weren't or they didn't think that they were they, they knew how to make it until recently. So this soil is um, refertilizing. It reintroduces nitrogen, so you don't need to top it up with more fertilizer. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because, as you said, we've got all these new technologies and we aren't using them. So I've pushed this onto a couple of farmers because they were. I was like, well. This is a no-brainer. Someone should try and make this. You will wreck the fertilization companies, which have to draw out nitrogen from the from the atmosphere. But you will benefit society immeasurably because we won't need such a heavy, wasteful industry. Essentially, someone in Germany actually has figured out how to make this stuff. These crops haven't been watered or artificially fertilized for ten years. They've been kept alive solely through natural rainfall, and yet they're thriving. The secret behind this apparent miracle is a layer of terra preta on the ground. The highly fertile soil mixture is based on an old indigenous formula from the Amazon region. So it's meant to be biochar, pottery, fish bone, animal bone. I've pushed it to farmers and apparently it's a, there's an article going to be hopefully sent out in Farmers Weekly next week on this super soil. But you're going, that's solution to climate change. And it's been around. People have known about this soil since 1896. And apparently in 2019, a German farm figured out how to make the bloody stuff. But no one in the UK. I've, so one is quite high. One farmer I know is quite high up in the farming industry. And another one is his farm is very much driven towards uh, environmentally friendly uh, solutions for the for their farm. Never heard of it. Sir. And you're going, how on earth have you not heard of a substance that would literally reduce cost in your farm? and solve all problems. And the farm in Germany was showing that they'd planted the soil in this area and it was still growing marrows like the size of your body 10 years later. Wow. It did, no one had to reintroduce fertilizers to it. And you'll go, and this is the thing with 3D printing. Why is that not being done? I'll, I'll, I'll point out this. Um, Athens used to give their citizens free housing. And a lot of these people look back at those classical points points in history i'm just going if they could do it two thousand years ago what's the difference now yep. but it was in, on a final final point i promise it'll end mod got ripped apart uh this week over his stance on the israel hamas thing i'm not going to go into detail about that but the guy ripped him apart i think his name is barnaby he pointed out that you and mod didn't have a response to this but it summed him up perfectly a hierarchical christian 
he thinks that there should be this pyramid of there's the really good Christians like Mogg and Boris and all the other conservatives. And then there's that rest. And it's like, that's not quite what Jesus said. (laughs) 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 But uh, Barnaby said, I'm not going to be lectured by a hierarchical Christian like yourself on how society should be run and the problems in other countries, because you've caused most of these problems. I think that summed it up pretty, pretty succinctly. And it is what you said, social Darwinism within society that exists, that they think if you're poor, you deserve to be there. And if you die, that's the natural way of things. And it's brutal. But I mean, look at Suella Bravo's comments this week. The, um, it's, just, it's, 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 it's up there with national socialism. So that, this is one of the things that actually sets humanity apart from other life on this planet, right? Is that we're able to think of ourselves collectively, you know, in a, in a much more kind of future planning kind of way. Right. We are able to think ahead, not just in, in, you know, obviously animals work in communities as well. Right. But they don't think on a global scale. They don't think about their impact on on society uh, and the planet. We are able to do that. You know, so it's so this whole idea of survival of the fittest, when we, when you're bringing you know, like things like economy of scale and, you know, the microchip you know, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just a completely um, like it's, it's not only antiquated, it's actually kind of. Um, it's almost what's the what's the it's not luddite is it but it's like it's purposefully designed to make us kind of not progress right it's regressive it's regressive thinking you know Boston. yeah i had so, a um, i had a guy on my podcast called professor richard wilkinson who uh, wrote a book um, with his wife who's also a professor of social sciences um called the spirit level and they they did this really deep dive study across the whole the whole planet and they looked at countries that had um varying levels of inequality and what they found was that if you pick any metric whether it's crime or teenage pregnancies or drug addiction or you know depression uh, pick any single metric and you'll find that in unequal societies such as ours you'll have all of that stuff in swathes but if, magically as soon as you, you you make society more equal like many of the scandinavian countries are doing you know you'll find that all of these social ills magically disappear so it, and, and and that's been proven in study after study after study after study so it, it's indisputable that a more equal society is provable by science to be better for absolutely everybody that lives within it so the idea of social darwinism is you know it's been proven to be wrong including the rich right if you actually solve poor yes. people's lives rich people's lives get better as well ironically right um but they don't think like that and and putting the onus on us right saying it's essentially survival of the fittest and if you don't deserve housing you don't get to have housing is essentially saying i don't believe in society that's literally what they're saying mm. you know because society you know, is this, the the idea of bringing everyone up to improve everyone else's lives is fundamental to what society is all about. You know, why? Imagine this is. I mean, you know, so a lot of people on the right wing would say, "Oh, we, I want a, a business leader to you know run the run the country," and that didn't work very well with Trump, did it? But there is there are analogies that work, right? Why would you not train your workforce? Why would you not make sure that they could get to work easily? Why would you not you know have a safe place for them to work in, right? All those kinds of things, and it's like. You look at the country, it's like, why would you not educate people, right? Why would you not, like, you know, because it's going to help your economy, isn't it? Isn't it? And and forcing them to do it themselves is just like anti-growth. Is it a class issue? It's about creating a a division within society that, like, a bit like what um, James was talking, or maybe it was Alex was talking about with uh, Mog, where I'm at the top and you're below me. Is that what it's all about? 
because you know as you said it would make sense and we sort of saw something like that in the 1800s where you know the factories were building homes for the workers maybe the the motivation wasn't to help the workers but it would they knew that well if the workers are near the factory they'll be able to be more efficient or more productive maybe that was the the motivation behind it but now it's that's like, why the derbies invented and installed indoor toilets because the derbies who set up one of the largest factories up north uh, for for cloth saw that the workers were going outside to the, to the woods basically to to use that as a toilet and they were wasting time so the only reason not because they were good christians any reason they installed indoor toilets was to make sure you weren't prattling around when you were outside on that cheerful just... note we're gonna have to go I know you all want to come back. You'll have to come back. <laughs> I can see that already. <laughs> right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.